Well, good morning. Oh, that sounded loud. <laughs> couple announcements real quick. Uh, men, we are meeting for Solomon's Forge today at 4. And uh, the second one is, I uh, just wanted to give you a bit of a heads up. We're going to do a little, going to throw a little curveball at you here in terms of uh, the preaching schedule in that uh, I'm going to take a little bit of a parenthesis of sorts, a break in Acts, and we're going to jump into the book of Galatians after this week um, because I feel like 13, 14, and 15 have set us up for the book of Galatians. This is when Paul would have written it, uh, and I think it'll really dive in depth about what the issues are that we're going to talk about today uh, in the early church and things that we can apply to ourselves uh, today. So we'll take a little bit of time and go through the book of Galatians, and then we will return to the book of Acts and move on through. I told Kim I could do that with every single letter in the New Testament, but that would probably take us about 25 years. Uh, I guess we have time, but you know, uh, we'll do it for Galatians anyway. So we are now in the second half of Acts chapter 15, and last week we concluded with James rendering a decision concerning what we call the Gentile problem. And he stated that Gentiles should not be troubled by Jewish ritual law, specifically circumcision, uh, as well as requiring the Gentiles to avoid bringing potential stumbling blocks into the assembly. Namely, meat sacrifice to idols, fornication, meat from animals that were strangled, and meat with the blood still in it. By all indications, this solution was deemed suitable by the Jerusalem church, It preserved both Jew and Gentile fellowship and the evangelistic efforts that were going on in the early church. Now, we read over those things, and because they're not that big of a deal to us, meat and whatnot and pagan temples, perhaps we can miss the immensity of what this decision means for the church. Uh, One commentator put it this way, when one considers the situation of the Jerusalem church in AD 49, The decision reached by the Jerusalem Christians must be considered one of the boldest and most magnanimous in the annals of church history. While still attempting to minister exclusively to the nation, the council refused to impede the progress of that other branch of the Christian mission whose every success meant further difficulty for them from within their own nation. In other words, they intentionally allow things to become difficult for themselves so that others can hear the gospel without the legalism, without the tradition. And if we think back to last week, in point of fact, it had been Peter, ironically, who had won the day. And it was one of Peter's finest moments, one that's probably not talked about enough, alongside his contributions at Pentecost, despite the personal dressing down that he experienced from Paul. We'll get to that in Galatians chapter 2 in a little more detail. Remember, he had dissimulated there. He had done some hypocritical things. He had reversed his practice in eating with the company of Gentiles, and Paul had to confront him to his face. And yet, just a short time after, probably weeks or a month or so after, Peter puts all that to the side in the interest of the gospel. He argued his case with such conviction that the council came to a unanimous decision. There was going to be no insistence on Jewish law. I'm sure as there often is, there were those individuals in the church who resisted. Paul will deal with the Jewish faction when he returns to Jerusalem in chapter 21. But on this day, the Holy Spirit had spoken through Peter and Paul and Barnabas and James. And the church would be united in purpose going forward. To make it official, James drafts a letter to send to Antioch, which was ground zero for the witness to the Gentiles. And that letter will go from Antioch and then presumably abroad as well to set the stage for this global expansion of the gospel and Gentiles coming to Christ. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, bless our time this morning. Bless the preaching of your word, Lord. Help it, help it to be real history. Help it to be real events that we see, these issues that were plaguing the early church that through your spirit the church was over to over, overcome. And also help us not to miss the things we can apply to our own lives here that your word gives us that truth. Sanctify us by it, Lord, and bless our time. May you get the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, here is our outline. A little different than maybe what we usually do because we're going to jump to another text entirely different from this one towards the end. But we'll start with this letter of sorts that goes to uh, Antioch from Jerusalem. 
Now, here's the thing that makes it difficult this week. We already talked about the contents of the letter last week before he wrote them down. So I don't want to just repeat what we talked about last week, but I want to talk about what's there and why it's important. We'll talk about the men that were sent up to Antioch, then get into the letter itself, and then the response of the Antioch church to that letter. Then I want to jump over to Corinthians because, interestingly enough, Paul is dealing with very similar issues in in terms of meat and idols and temples and whatnot in the city of Corinth, and I think we'll have a lot to learn from him there. And then we'll go to Jesus and the parable of the Good Samaritan to kind of hammer home our points. So let's start in verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, Judas called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brethren. So here are our delegates. Of course, we've got Paul and Barnabas, but we also add two men from the Jerusalem church, Judas called Barsabbas, and Silas. If Paul and Barnabas had returned on their own, maybe somebody would have said, well, of course you give us that decision. Where do we get the authority from Jerusalem? And so these two men are sent with them. By the way, in in antiquity, apparently four is the magic number for a delegation. Ancient Greco-Roman documents uh, report that four delegates were always sent with a report and the findings of a council. Furthermore, written accounts were good in the ancient world, but in many contexts, an oral report was better. To hear it from the mouth of those that were involved carried even more weight. Paul and Barnabas we know well, but what about these other two men? Well, first, why are they going? The two delegates would be able to give their personal interpretation of the letter's contents. They would be able to report on the conference that occurred in Jerusalem. They're described here as leading men in the church of Jerusalem. Quite literally, the Greek there means men of authority. They are men of authority in the church. That's not an official office, but it carries that church authority with it. In verse 32, Luke is going to identify them as prophets as well. So these two men are, are a very interesting combo. As to the first, Judas called Barsabbas, we know nothing about him. Uh, his name means son of the Sabbath or born on the Sabbath. Judas is derived from Judah, one of the twelve sons of Jacob. So his name tells us something about him. His name tells us that his family is very much committed Jew. He's likely from Judea because he goes by these Hebrew names. Then we meet the second man, Silas, who we are going to learn much more about as we go through the book of Acts. He's very well known. He will accompany Paul on his second missionary journey. He's mentioned ten times between Acts 15 and Acts 18. Silas is the shortened form of the Greek name Silvanus, so if you are reading the epistles and you come across Silvanus, that is Silas. So it seems unlikely that, or it seems likely that unlike Barsabbas, Silas was probably a Hellenistic Jew because he has a Greek name. And this is the same Silvanus that Paul mentions as his co-laborer in several of his epistles, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, 1 Thessalonians 1, 2 Thessalonians 1. He was there for the founding of both the Corinthian church and the Thessalonican church, so his inclusion there is appropriate. Acts 16.37 seems to indicate that, like Paul, he's a Roman citizen, lending to the fact that he's probably a Hellenistic Jew. He and Paul probably would have gotten along famously, and we see that in the later relationship. Here's one interesting observation before we move on from these men. Paul's primary companions the ones who embraced the Holy Spirit-led, God-ordained mission to the Gentiles were Barnabas and Silas. Both of those men had come to Paul from the Jerusalem church. It's an amazing picture of unity that we have here. These men recognized and affirmed Paul's call to ministry. They supported him when some individuals in the home church attempted to derail his ministry. In the end, however, it strengthened the church. So God blessed faithful Barnabases and Silases, Every minister needs men like that at his side. One other interesting note is that Silas may have later served as Peter's amanuensis for some of his writings. What's an amanuensis? It's a big fancy word for this Sunday morning. Amanuensis is a secretary. It's someone who writes down the words of the one who is dictating. And we see that in 1 Peter 5.12 where it says, Through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. So Silas has interactions with Paul. He has interactions with, uh, with Peter. And he may have had a hand in writing down some of our New Testament. This guy is important. All right, let's get to the letter in verse 23. 
And they sent this letter by them, the apostles and the brethren who were elders, to the brethren in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia who are from the Gentiles, greetings. Here's one thing you can say about the introduction. It's a very formal letter. It's written in the traditional Greco-Roman style. You put the senders first, the apostles and the brethren who are elders, and then you put the recipients, the brethren in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. They call them brothers. That's huge. That is setting the stage for what's about to be said. Remember, it was in Antioch that this dispute first arose, so it's to Antioch that the letter is addressed. It would be disseminated out from there. This also may be indicative of a Jewish church writing in a Greco-Roman style in order to make the people they are writing to more comfortable. Again, putting others first by addressing them in their style and in their custom. Here's what is written. Since we have heard that some of our number to whom we gave no instruction have disturbed you with their words, unsettling your souls, it seemed good to us, having become of one mind, to select men to send to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's one sentence in the Greek. The position of the Jerusalem church could not be any clearer after reading that one sentence. This letter is not exactly a declaration. It's pretty short. It gets right to the point. First, notice the disassociation. We have heard that some of our number to whom we gave no instruction have disturbed you with their words. In other words, they may have come from Jerusalem, but we didn't send them and they don't speak for us. As I said last week, sometimes the Pharisees pop up inside the church. That's the example here. When he says they have unsettled your souls, the English doesn't quite capture what's being said there in the Greek Uh, That word unsettling is a military metaphor. It's used to mean the plunder or the looting of a town. And, And that word souls is suke. It means soul. It can mean life. So in other words, they overthrew your lives. And, and, and understand this. Here are Gentiles who have given the gospel. They have put their faith in Christ. They have put their trust there. They have been assured that that is their eternity. And then somebody says, oh, not really. You're not really saved. That's a crisis of faith. That upends their entire lives. And here's the church at Jerusalem saying, don't listen to those guys. We didn't send them. They're not authorized. It's a strong condemnation. The Jerusalem council here was obviously not happy with these Judaizers and their upsetting of the Gentiles in Antioch. At the same time, they legitimized the ministry of Paul and Barnabas. These men, James writes, have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. The word risk there can also mean devotion, whether they risked their lives for Christ or devoted their lives to Christ. Both are accurate. Both represent the complete commitment by both Paul and Barnabas to preaching the gospel. Certainly their lives were on the line in that first missionary journey. And if you want the warm fuzzy in the letter, James calls Paul and Barnabas our beloved our beloved, agapetois hemon, our dear friends, the ones we love, our favorites. So it's a commendation to both Paul and Barnabas and a rejection of the Pharisees who had come up there earlier. He continues and says, Therefore we have sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will also report the same things by word of mouth. So again, the responsibility of Judas and Silas, these Jerusalem delegates, is to report, to comment, to teach on what is recorded in the letter. In other words, if you have any questions, these two men can answer them. They are invested with our authority. The true content of the letter begins in verse 28. And it is, perhaps surprisingly, very brief and to the point. But again, you've got two men there that can expand on this teaching. So remember, they don't have a word processor. There's no Microsoft Word. They can't write 500 pages of doctrine. They have a limited amount of time on a piece of a scroll or a letter, so they write this letter. They say, here's our base understanding, here's what you need to apply to your church, and these two men will explain further. You can guarantee that there would have been teaching that went along with this letter. But here is the meat of it, here's the content. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials. So no Mosaic law, no circumcision, here's what you need to do. That you abstain from things sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from things strangled, and from fornication. And if you keep yourselves free from such things, you will do well. Farewell. Right? Right to the point. First off, this is not opinion. What does James say? The Holy Spirit is responsible for the dissemination of this truth. 
Just as the Spirit had been instrumental in the inclusion of the Gentiles, remember that was Peter's testimony earlier in the chapter, so now in the Jerusalem Council, the Spirit has led those leaders in considering these Gentiles for inclusion and the conditions for that inclusion. We understand that the gospel is about freedom and not burdens. And so James recaps the essentials that we discussed last week. Again, these specific problems are not issues that we still deal with today. Now, I guess we could say, well, we still frown on fornication, sure. But in this context, in terms of of what's going on in a pagan temple, we don't necessarily see this as the first century church saw it. But they were a big threat in the early church. In the council that they are in, or in the context that they are in, this is a major thing. Paul will later deal with these issues in Corinth, the very same issues. More on that in a bit. Rightfully so, Jewish Christians, and Gentile Christians for that matter, did not want to be associated with idolatry. They they don't want that appearance of evil in their lives. Not in the slightest bit. And so the apostolic advice is, you know what, avoid it. Even if it's okay to eat that meat, avoid it for the sake of fellowship. Honor your brother who has different convictions. I think a modern parallel might be, uh, for us, think maybe the consumption of alcohol that some would hold to a strict no-alcohol policy. And that should be respected. That's one's choice in the matter. There are convictions. There are other factors that go into that. Others don't hold the same conviction. Now, can we talk about from Scripture very clearly that it's a sin to be drunk? Absolutely. But can I come from Scripture and get a full prohibition? That'll be difficult to do, considering the amount of wine that's drunk in Scripture. Now, not all of it's good, but there is a lot of wine there. This is, a, this is a personal conviction issue. But if that personal conviction is elevated to the level of doctrine without scriptural support, then we're using the same tactic as the Judaizers. We're, we're elevating tradition and preference over Scripture. Again, this was a lasting issue in the church Food sacrificed to idols producing a stumbling block in the church is condemned in, at the church at Pergamum in Revelation 2.14. That's over 30 years from now. In 2.20, it's the same thing in the church at Thyatira. Also, fornication is dealt with there in the temple things that are going on. In the 4th century, 300 years from now, Tertullian mentions the churches in North Africa having to abstain from blood. It's still an issue then. Another 4th century decree from Syria uh, forbade the consumption of blood and strangled meat. What does this tell us? It was an ongoing struggle. And and I'll get to kind of our modern idea. This is not really an issue for us because most of us aren't strangling our own animals and slaughtering our own meat. Now that may happen for some of you people that live out there in the rural parts of the world. But most of us don't do that. And so this is not something that comes up. But the fact is that these essentials are not law. Legalism has no place beside the gospel. And Paul's teaching on the stumbling block principle and the weaker brother in 1 Corinthians, which we'll touch on briefly this morning, confirms that. But they are important tenets to consider and to honor. These apostolic decrees are designed to enable fellowship and encourage humility. By doing what? By thinking of others before yourself. That's essential for church maturity. Verse 30. This is the aftermath. So when they were sent away, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. So upon their arrival, as was the custom, the church was assembled. The letter was read in the presence of the entire congregation. The letter was encouraging because all their faiths were legitimized that moment. The faith you put in Christ is enough to save. You don't have to go be circumcised. You don't have to do dietary things. It was finished. You put your trust in Christ. And what's the reaction? It's joy. Praise the Lord. I thought I was saved. Now I know I'm saved. And, and, And the faith of every Gentile believer in attendance would have been strengthened by this moment. Their souls had been unsettled. This letter brings a foundation to their church, to their faith. Verse 32. Judas and Silas, also being prophets themselves, encouraged and strengthened the brethren with a lengthy message. Now, we don't get the content of it, but they preached sermons based on this letter. They taught along with it. They also had the gift of prophecy, so they were able to even go beyond the idea of interpretation. Conference and to further strengthen and and, and encourage their brothers and sisters at Antioch. Remember, in the New Testament, prophecy is a gift of the early church. It's a gift of inspiration, and once, which one delivers a word of God right to the early church. 
Further, this is two men being obedient to the Spirit to build fellowship with a group that probably didn't trust them when they got there. And by the time we get to verse 32, they are teaching them, they are rejoicing, they are encouraged, they are bonding together in Christ. I would say this is the body of Christ in Jerusalem being the body of Christ to the body of Christ in Antioch. It's the church in action. Verse 33, after they had spent time there, they were sent away from the brethren in peace to those who had sent them out, a return trip to Jerusalem. The fellowship of the church is on full display. The two delegates spend significant time there. It's not, hey, here's your letter, we'll see you later. They spend some time, there's fellowship, there's teaching, there's encouragement, there's edification. And when it came time to leave, we know this was a joyous occasion because the Gentile church sends them back to Jerusalem with a blessing of peace, the ancient Jewish blessing of shalom. And that's how they send them back to Jerusalem. Now, verse 34, very quickly, don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but if you have a NASB, you will notice the brackets around that verse. If you have an ESV or perhaps an NIV, you'll notice that verse 34 is not there. <laughs> you're going, what happened to verse 34 in my Bible? But you probably have a footnote if you have an ESV at the very least. If you have a King James or a New King James, it's there, no brackets. All right, so what's going on here with this verse? Well, very quickly, this verse is not found in the earliest manuscripts, so it's probably a later edition. It's very much in the Western text, and I know this is, you're starting to nod off as soon as I start talking about manuscripts, but I'll be quick. But I think probably a scribe added this somewhere along the line to explain how Silas is going to be leaving with Paul in about six verses. The problem is it compromises the rest of the story when it's there, so I don't think it's probably original. And the addition, it actually creates more confusion because in verse 33, it says they returned. It's a plural. So there's no way to make they into he in that sense. So it's, and there's only two guys. So Judas and Silas returned to Jerusalem. Certainly, it's easily explained that when Paul and Barnabas have their falling out, which is going to happen in a few verses, Paul could easily have sent to Jerusalem for Silas and recruited, recruited him for that journey. Verse 36 says explicitly, after some days... So time has passed, probably a number of months, between this delegation and Paul's second missionary journey. Plenty of time for Silas to have gone back to Jerusalem and returned to journey with Paul after a few months. All right, verse 35. But Paul and Barnabas stayed in Antioch, teaching and preaching, with many others also, the word of the Lord. So verse 35 concludes the narrative of the Jerusalem council. It's a summary statement. Now that the Gentile question had been settled, the church prospered under the teaching and preaching of Paul and Barnabas, and notice, many others. It wasn't just Paul and Barnabas, there were also many others. I think the many others, something we just kind of skip right over when we're reading, is significant. Because I think this gives us, uh, and it does in Scripture, our final kind of glimpse into the Antioch church. We, We see what's going on there. Paul and Barnabas would soon be leaving for mission fields elsewhere. So they don't leave that church without leadership. They leave the church in good hands. There were many others who were competent to carry on its witness. And do you think they just came in the door ready to carry on that witness? No, Paul and Barnabas poured into these men to prepare them to carry on the witness. And not to sound like a broken record, but again, this is why discipleship is fundamental for the local church. Teachers must be raised up, ideally from the congregation. So that strong doctrine and godly living continues into the future. Paul and Barnabas are working themselves out of a job. It's the most uh, anti-American style business decision you'll ever see. But it's what true elders do. We make ourselves redundant for the future health and longevity of the church. And for a church to neglect that responsibility is both egregious and irresponsible. Paul and Barnabas are doing exactly what they're supposed to be doing at that church in Antioch. All right, let's make a transition, and let's try to apply, and let's get into this issue a little bit that Paul and Barnabas are dealing with, because again, we're probably not too convicted about meat being sacrificed to idols. We don't deal with that. How do we apply this to ourselves? Well, let's examine this, and there are two sides to this issue. There are two sides to the issue of meat being sacrificed to idols. One side is a doctrinal issue. That has to be solidified. That has to be agreed upon in all circumstances. It must be based on Scripture. 
The other side of it deals with preference. And while it's not doctrine, it also needs to be dealt with definitively in how we are to approach one another. So here's what I want you to do. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to spend a little time in a couple chapters in Corinthians. And again, you see the prevalence of this issue because Paul is dealing with it there. Paul writes 1 Corinthians after the third missionary journey, so a few years more down the line, but it is still an issue there. All right, 1 Corinthians 10, 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men. You judge what I say. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Obviously talking about the Lord's Supper here. I lost my place. Let me find it again. There we go. Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Look at the nation Israel. Are not those who eat sacrifices sharers in the altar? What do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, but I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We are not stronger than he, are we? So let me ask you a question. Is this Paul dealing in black and white, or is this Paul dealing in the gray area? This is black and white. You cannot go and participate in rituals at a pagan temple. And we would all go, amen, of course. That's obvious, right? To sum up, believers shouldn't be anywhere near pagan ceremonies, anywhere near pagan temples. It's condemned, and Paul doesn't give us any leeway. Now, turn back a couple chapters to chapter 8, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Verse 4, therefore concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, that's exactly what James is talking about in the letter. Concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there's no such thing as an idol in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things uh, and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things and we exist through him. However, not all men have this knowledge, but some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. But food will not commend us to God. We're neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. And so by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Now, is Paul dealing with black and white, or is he dealing with gray? Now he's in the gray area. Now he's talking about a weaker brother and a stronger brother. It's a different context. Food in these verses is more appropriately understood as meat. It lines up with these apostolic decrees in the letter. And there are pagan connections here in both cases that need to be addressed. As 1 Corinthians 10 makes makes clear, Gentile Christians cannot be permitted to continue in pagan religious practices. Why? Because that would be idolatry. You cannot participate in idolatry and then come eat at the Lord's table. That's the clear directive. But the fact is, the vast majority understood that. Now, certainly there are people that Paul has to deal with. But most Christians were not coming into church going, I should be able to worship all these other idols as well. That's not what they were saying. This is a different issue that's there. There were not massive numbers of Gentile converts going, no, but I should still be able to do the temple prostitution thing, right? Is that that cool if I'm in the church and I still do that? There's not many making that argument. Now, there are false teachers maybe making that argument. There are not real converts making that argument. But we're talking about people within the church here. What James is addressing in Acts and what Paul is dealing with here in chapter 8 is the gray area that that existed in that day. The gray area that maybe we don't understand as well, involving particularly meat that had been connected to pagan activities. Let me try to explain this. 
try to get a little bit clearer. Hey, you hungry now that we see that? Hey, sorry for any vegans and vegetarians in the room. Um, I think we need to understand one thing as we try to get our head around this meat problem. We're pretty spoiled when it comes to the uh, purchasing meat in just about every way. Right? Access is easy, variety is assumed, no messy preparation required. Okay? I don't know what steak costs per pound nowadays, but it's probably not real good in the current economy, but that's a whole other issue. But in Paul's day, this was a socioeconomic issue, especially in the cities. I'm not talking about the people that live out on the farms. I'm talking about the people that live in the urban centers. Meat was a rich man's game in that day. The elite of the first century either had their own animals and would have them butchered, or they could purchase meat for personal consumption. The common man in that day had much more difficulty doing that. And yet, they needed their protein, they needed their meat, and so what would they do? They'd do what we do. they look for a bargain. What's the best price I can get on a cut of meat that I can take home and feed my family on? And here's the rub. Pagan temples were often involved in providing that bargain. Here's what would happen. After sacrifices had been offered, they would sell that unused meat at a discounted price because it was no longer what they would use in the ceremony. So if someone of meager means wanted to have a steak dinner (laughs) or wanted to cook some burgers for the kids, I don't know, that might be their only viable option to get meat. And so that's what they would do. They're not participating in the ceremonies. They're not part of the rituals, but they would buy the meat that was a byproduct of that in order to feed their families on a budget. Combine that with Paul's teaching in 8.4, where he says an idol is nothing at all in the world, and you can see why Gentiles are not really conflicted about making this purchase. What are they saying? I don't believe in that God. To me, it's just meat. What's the big deal? But the Jewish members of the church are hammering them about it. And it's not to say that the Jewish believers don't have strong convictions and legitimate convictions, but this is where the heads are being butted on this whole thing. This is why James has to write it. Now, you might say, well, we don't deal with those issues anymore. Well, not in the same way, but I think we make very similar choices as the Gentile Christians do on a daily basis. If you were going to set out to live your life provide for your family, make dinner, all that stuff, buy a house, buy a car, have all the stuff that you need. If you had to only purchase from Christian companies, how many things would you have? If you can't live off of Chick-fil-A and Hobby Lobby, you're in big trouble, (laughs) right? We all make these decisions economically every day. That phone in your pocket, That laptop on your desk, the car or truck you drove here today, the social media platform you post on, even the bank where you keep your money. Every one of those companies take your money and they invest it in organizations and causes that you don't agree with. That's the fact of the matter. Organizations that are antithetical to the Christian faith. So let me say this. If you have convictions to boycott some companies due to their stance on these social issues, more power to you. That's, that is your decision. We should be able to make those decisions on our own in terms of convictions on moral issues. Your convictions are your own, and you have to honor your conscience. I'm not here to tell you what you can and can't do in those gray areas. At the same time, do I believe that if you buy a Coke, you're affirming their stances on marriage and gender and everything else? No. I, this is precisely the issue at hand for Christians in the first century Greco-Roman world. It'd be like going to the store with a friend of yours, you buy a Coke, and they rip your face off because you're supporting the LGBTQ agenda. That, that's, the, that's the equivalent in terms of the Gentiles. They're going, it's just a piece of steak. I'm, I'm not interested in what they support. I just need to feed my family. That's the idea. Let's jump to here are kind of the verses I want to center in on on this last part of the sermon. And it's in 1 Corinthians 10, 23. And we'll go to 24 as well. But Paul says, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Now, Paul has said something similar. If we were studying the book of Corinthians, this would ring a bell. Because back in chapter 6, verse 12, he said, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Same statements in an earlier chapter. The context in that chapter was sexual immorality. 
Therefore, I think what we can deduce and what Paul is saying here is that the Corinthians' attitude toward meat sacrifice to idols derived from the same hard-headed and self-centered perspective as the problems with immorality in chapter 6. It was all about selfishness. It was all about elevating myself over others. All things are lawful, a lot of commentators think might have been a catchphrase in Corinth, that somebody would say, approach a Corinthian and say, hey, you shouldn't be doing that. And they go, hey, all things are lawful. It's kind of a quesera sera. You know, it's kind of that. It was a catchphrase that they would use to kind of cover their behavior. And today, somebody would make a meme and it would just say, deal with it. That's, that's kind of what, hey, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. All things are lawful. I'm free. That was, the, that was the idea. But let me say this. Paul would never wholeheartedly subscribe to that statement. Paul would never say that was how we should live, and neither should we. And, and, and that might be surprising for us to hear because we think of Paul as the, uh, the ultimate champion of Christian freedom. It is for freedom that Christ set us free, right? That's, that's what Paul has told us in Galatians. However, his view of freedom was always colored by the reality that believers are in Christ primarily, meaning that their allegiance to him supersedes all earthly arrangements, And the fact of the matter is one's actions in the name of so-called freedom can have negative effects on his neighbor, can have negative effects on his church. So he says all things are not profitable. Profitable there just means beneficial or better or expedient. If we wanted to rephrase it, we might say just because you can doesn't mean you should. Yes, it is legal. You can do that. You have the freedom to do that. But what is the benefit of you making that decision? And I think more importantly, what I want to zero in on is he says, all things are lawful, but all things do not edify. Oikodomeo is the word there. It literally means to build a house. Domeo, we get domicile from that idea. Oikos is a, is a building up. So to build a house, to establish. It's the same thing we saw in 1 Corinthians 3, if you've read 3 recently, with reference to Christian leaders building on the church's one foundation, which was Christ. So he says the church's job is to edify. And if you are just exploiting the freedom that you've been given with no care for those that are around you, you do not edify. Well, what's the difference? What's the opposite of edify? It's tear down. You are either edifying someone or you are tearing them down. Paul uses the same word. We just read it in chapter 8 when he said, But take care of this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you, who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened, be built up, oikodomeo, to eat things sacrificed to idols. In other words, if someone is on a diet, you don't invite him over to your house and serve cake and ice cream. It's inconsiderate, it's rude, it's not nice. Okay? It's, it's, not, it's unkind, it doesn't build them up. And, and what does the last part say? If he's weak... Be strengthened. He might be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols. You might ruin that diet in about five minutes. They'll give in and, 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 and go against their conscience. Here's the point. The church is to be in the edification business. We are to build one another up. So when we elevate non-essentials to the level of doctrine, we create a man-made system of holiness, a program outside the bounds of Scripture. It's the Word of God that convicts and exhorts us to holiness. Man-centered approaches lead to frustration, disillusion. They give us a yoke we cannot carry. We can't be agents of discouragement in our preaching or our teaching or our application of the faith. I would just say this, don't ever forget or lose focus of your first love. As Peter said in 1 Peter 4, 8, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. Why? Because love covers a multitude of sins. Not love in opposition to truth, but in concert with truth. Live in the love of Christ and interact with your neighbors in that same love of Christ. And that's what Paul says in verse 24. Let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. It parallels the second greatest commandment, found originally in Leviticus 19.18, reiterated by Jesus in all three synoptic gospels. What is it to love your neighbor as yourself? That's the second greatest commandment behind loving the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. In a world that screams, me first, Paul says, no, we elevate the needs of others. That's our priority. And what's the picture of that? How about Luke chapter 10? Turn over there, Luke 10. 
very familiar story to us. The parable of the Good Samaritan. Of course, this follows a conversation by a young lawyer who wants to talk to Jesus about how he is to be saved, and this young lawyer thinks he's kept the law to the letter. And Jesus has to explain to him what justification really is. And that's telling in verse 29 where he says, But wishing to justify himself, can any of us justify ourselves? He said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Who do I have to treat this way? And here's the story that Jesus tells. Jesus replied and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down on that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place, saw him and passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion and came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend when I return, I will repay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, The one who showed mercy toward him. And then Jesus said to him, Go and do the same. This parable obviously teaches that people should help other people who are in need when they encounter them. That's, that's a basic teaching there. It condemns implicit prejudices. It demands compassion. Of course, Jesus himself was the great example of the attitudes and the actions that he says Christians are to do in this parable. However, it seems clear that Jesus didn't give this parable to draw attention to himself. He's not saying, I'm the Good Samaritan, even though that's who Jesus fulfills. It's not what he's saying. He's trying to teach his disciples and the lawyers what it means to love your neighbor. That's the point of this parable. It means putting others first, even when it makes you uncomfortable. It means stepping out of the comfort zone and into the danger zone just for the opportunity to be more like Christ. Just for the opportunity to shine the light on the gospel and our Savior. He's given us much and we respond in kind by showing the love of Christ. If we go back to our situation in Antioch, let's be honest, it would be much easier for James and Peter, and the Jerusalem church to stick to their Jewish guns. To say, you know what, we're just going to keep doing it like we were. We like the tradition. We're going to keep it this way. Less headaches, less red tape, and it would be a lot more comfortable. They've done it their whole lives. It's not a big deal. We'll just keep it that way. And, And really, there's not a lot of Gentiles in Jerusalem anyway. Let them deal with that out there. At least we'll be good right here. But James and Peter stick their necks out for the church. For the gospel, they bring headaches upon themselves so that others can hear the gospel, so that churches can be built elsewhere, so that somewhere, one day, hundreds of years later, could they imagine, thousands of years later, across oceans, people would be coming to faith in the gospel because they removed the hindrances from the preaching of it. They didn't have to do that. It would have been easier not to, but they loved their neighbor. They put others First, this is central to Paul's teaching. Romans 15, 2, each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification. And probably the best example is in Philippians 2, verse 3, do not do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not look, merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Let me remember what the next line is in Philippians 2, 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in who? Christ Jesus. You want to be like Jesus? You put others first. You want to be like Jesus, the one who died for sinners while you were yet a sinner? Then think of others first. See, for Paul, the death of Christ in which he gave himself for us was not only God's offer of a pardon to sinners, and it certainly was, but it was also the only proper model for discipleship. This is how we are to live. And perhaps shockingly, the principle is to be practiced in all parts of the world with both believers and unbelievers for the sake of the gospel. Look at what Paul says here, one final verse of Scripture. 1 Corinthians nine nineteen. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. 
To the Jews I became as a Jew, so that I might win Jews. To those who were under the law, as under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who were under the law. To those who were without law, as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who were without law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that I may by all means save some. I'll do whatever I can for one person to hear the gospel and believe. Don't misunderstand. Paul's not compromising. He's just putting others first. He's putting his own safety, his own comfort, his own interests on the back burner so that others can hear the gospel. So are you willing to embrace weakness in order to see the unimaginable strength of Christ in your life? I know all of us would say yes. But if you want that to be a reality when the trial comes, don't wait until the trial comes to start praying for strength. The cross might be light today, it might be immovable tomorrow. Will we trust him then? I rewrote my uh, conclusion last night because yesterday I had the privilege of attending uh, Mark Davidson's memorial service. Marshall's brother-in-law, Mindy's brother. We've been praying for him for months and months and years at this point. And we've heard from Marshall and Mindy for a while now of his strength in weakness, his perseverance, and the grace the Lord has given him throughout this battle with cancer. And all of that and more was on display yesterday, from the packed auditorium to the presentation of the gospel to Mark's very words that were saturated with Scripture being read from the pulpit. It was a celebration of a life lived to the glory of God. None of that was a surprise. I I knew that's what was going to happen. And I never had the opportunity to meet Mark, but I told Marshall yesterday, I feel like I knew him. I feel like he was a friend. And no doubt we're brothers in Christ, and I feel like we'll talk a little basketball in the kingdom one day. But I was struck by something else I witnessed yesterday. Because I watched as Mark's five sons each stood up before the church and spoke about their dad. And not only were they poised and prepared and eloquent, they each exhibited a clear faith in Christ. In that moment, their faith was on display. They each possessed an otherworldly peace when speaking about a father who by all rational and earthly thought was taken far too soon. And in spite of that, saving faith was on display. A peace that surpasses all understanding was remarkable. And the fruit of a father who loved his children enough to make it known to, him, known to them that his Savior was the reason for everything he did was amazingly clear. And I was able to relate to that as a father to three sons. And I was convicted because as a dad sometimes, I get so caught up in behavior modification and maybe put it this way, molding my boys in my image. We, we get caught up in our preferences, what we want to see, how we want it to happen. And it's easier to do it that way. It's easier to modify behavior. That's not a difficult thing. But can you have the difficult conversations? Can you step out in faith and preach the gospel? And if you're like me, sometimes it's harder to preach the gospel to family than it is to strangers. Will we do that in our lives? Are we willing to do the hard work? Or am I going to be okay with good kids who behave themselves? It's not enough. I miss the forest for the trees when I do those things. I am prone to elevate preference over biblical truth. Here's the fact of the matter. Our closest neighbors are our spouses, our children, our grandchildren. And I want you to listen to me. If that's all the ministry the Lord ever gives you, it's worth everything you have to preach the gospel to those people. Live out your faith for your household to see. I thought of my own parents, and my parents passed on. Uh, my mom's coming up on 21 years now, and I wasn't even a, a believer at that point. My dad died a few years ago and didn't even have a funeral. But certainly if I would have been able to speak at those funerals, I, I would have shared the gospel, but I wouldn't have had anything to say. 
I wouldn't have had any assurance. I wouldn't have had any encouragement for where they were spending eternity. That was not the case yesterday. And it made me think, what will my boys say about me on that day? Those boys certainly made their dad proud yesterday. But more importantly, they honored the Lord Jesus Christ. Their father's Lord and Savior. And because of the grace of God, their Lord and Savior as well. I'll end with this. In the parable of the soils, Jesus says, But the seed in the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart and hold it fast. They don't let go of it. And they bear fruit with perseverance. All that to say, our testimony is everything. Our character is on display, but it's the character of Christ that's at stake. Now, don't misunderstand, nothing you or I do changes one iota about the holiness of Christ, but it does impact the effectiveness of our gospel witness. For some strange reason, the Lord has chosen you and I, fallible, limited vessels that we are, to preach his gospel, to teach his word, to serve his church, and to love his children. We edify, we serve, we are to put others first. All of those things require us proud and stubborn vessels that we are to get out of the way, to simply be obedient, to be content when the spotlight falls on him rather than ourselves. We want results. We want, we want to see it right now. We're those kind of people. No, we trust the Lord for the increase. We keep throwing the seed because of what he's done for us. Hallelujah and praise the Lord. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, We praise you for your grace this morning, for the salvation that you've given us through Christ. I pray our lives would reflect that gratitude, that our words, our actions would reflect that love, the very love of Christ. That that's how they'll know that we belong to you, Lord, that we love one another, that we edify, that we build up, that we consider others before ourselves. Lord, let us have the mind in ourselves that was in Christ Jesus taking on the form of a servant to the glory of God, doing your will in full obedience. Or convict us where necessary, encourage us in our efforts to disciple and to teach truth and be glorified in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen.